What's up, listeners? Alex here. This week, we are revisiting one of my all-time favorite episodes of the show, my interview with entrepreneur and former Bonobos founder and CEO, Andy Dunn. Last year, Andy published a book detailing his experience of starting Bonobos, a massive $300 million menswear brand while living with untreated bipolar disorder. Though Andy was diagnosed at 20 years old, he didn't do much to manage his condition, largely because he didn't want to deal with the stigma surrounding mental health disorders. But as you can imagine, because he wasn't undergoing proper treatment, Andy ultimately had a traumatic breakdown at the height of his career. His story is inspiring and is exactly what this show is all about, highlighting how amazingly accomplished professionals have dealt with overwhelming challenges, as well as the importance of sharing our struggles with others. So with that, please enjoy my conversation with Andy Dunn. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Andy Dunn, thank you for joining Imposters. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Alex. So you came out with your first book. It is called Burn Rate. And the subtitle of the book is Launching a Startup and Losing My Mind. How did you lose your mind? So the book is really about the way that mental illness and entrepreneurship intersect, at least in my journey. And as we all know, the highs and lows of the entrepreneurial journey are profound. In my case, I had an untreated, unmedicated mood disorder underneath that was making those highs higher and those lows even lower. And what is the mood disorder? And when did you first kind of really experience it in a profound way? So it's called bipolar one. And I was diagnosed when I was 20 due to a manic episode that I had in college. And it was around that time as I was discharged that we all collectively as a family decided to just bury it. You know, my mom's side of the family are Indian immigrants. My dad's side of the family are Scandinavian Midwesterners. What they both have in common is a inability to talk about mental illness, at least in my family. And it's actually remarkable given that my grandmother had issues with mental illness. My grandfather, uh, we think, became a psychiatrist in part to treat her. Uh, had her committed twice, uh, as my dad says in his own book about them and about their love story, that my grandfather wielded dark powers <laughs> against her. And yet every time she came back, they never talked about it. They pretended as, as as if everything was normal. And so for me, you know, that was the way that we did this. We just didn't deal with it. Fast forward a decade later, building Bonobos on the roller coaster that is a startup and in my case, anyway, those highs and lows were even higher and lower because there was this ghost of you know bipolar one disorder lurking in the background. And for people that aren't super familiar with bipolar broadly and then bipolar one versus bipolar two, can you just quickly explain how bipolar manifests? Like, what are the different sides to it that you've experienced in your life? Yeah, so bipolar one, which I can speak best to, it makes it sound like you really just have two mood states. The truth is that I would say it's it's an amalgam of more like four or five, where you have on the low end, depression is the easiest to think about because it's it's so common. 
it just can get really particularly acute with bipolar one. So the suicide attempt rate for bipolar one, we think is 60%. The suicide rate itself is 20%. So there's a real blackness that can come with the depression for bipolar one. And for me, that would be just catatonic, can't get out of bed, sleeping 80% of the waking hours during a weekend. And really the only thing that kept me alive was a commitment mentally to my family to keep going, particularly my niece, uh, who was my goddaughter, and just this feeling of no matter how bad things got for me, I would never leave her. And then on the flip side, the job, right, which is so demanding, I felt so much duty towards it that no matter what, it would pull me out of bed and make sure, like I would make sure that I worked at least 20 or 30 hours each week just to keep the lights on at Bonobos. And frankly, in a way that was its own antidepressant. And then on the high side, you have mania. And mania with bipolar one is it's psychosis, elevated speech, oscillating mood states between maybe laughing one minute, crying another, irritability, delusions of grandeur, uh, messianic delusions or messianic zeal. You know, you just kind of picture, you know, sadly picture the person on the street who looks like they've lost their mind. That was me. And I was hospitalized as a result. And so it's this really interesting thing where you talk about how the family you grew up in, even though it was a family of doctors, even though your grandma uh, on, was it your dad's side that had their own mental challenges? Exactly. Grandma on my dad's side, an aunt on my dad's side, who is a psychiatrist, in addition to my grandfather, who'd been one. And then on my mom's side, not for nothing, there are 10 physicians between my aunts and uncles. And yet none of them wanted to talk about the mental health side of things. And I can remember disclosing to one of my uncles when he was visiting me in New York, hey, I'm not able to get out of bed on the weekends. Like, I'm just not well. And he said, oh, Andy, you just have a hard job. You know, you have a very stressful and demanding job. And it was just crushing because I had made this bid basically to a medical professional which was very hard for me to say. I wasn't, I didn't feel like I wanted to tell anyone I was depressed. I just wanted to hide. It didn't feel like it was a part of my identity that other people wanted to acknowledge. I didn't want to acknowledge it. And so when I finally brought it up to be told that's not what it is, let's not give it that name was crushing. Andy's experience of sharing his suffering with a medical professional only to have his complaints brushed off as not serious is unfortunately all too common. When we feel like something is wrong and we share it with someone we trust, we are so vulnerable. So to not be taken seriously in this instance can be shattering. But doctors are human and therefore imperfect. So if you feel that something is deeply wrong in your own well-being, seek help. If one professional brushes you off, seek out the advice of another. Advocate for yourself. Don't give up until you find the help that you need. In Andy's case, it took him a long time to find the help that he needed. And he didn't even realize that he might have a condition until he had his first manic episode in college. So part of the challenge of talking about mania is it can feel in retrospect absolutely humiliating and actually so shameful. And, you know, shame, I've realized, is connected to what's unspeakable. And so what I'm about to share with you for many years, you know, for the better part of two decades, I couldn't speak about 
But basically when I was 20, I thought I was the second coming. I thought I was, you know, Jesus 2.0. I was going to go heal the world. And it was the turn of the millennium. You know, so we have the millennium turning for the first time in a thousand years or 2000 years since, you know, the transition from, you know, BC to AD. And I happened to be watching some news segments around people who were praying for the arrival of the Messiah. And, you know, it's also the turn of the millennium. And so we're partying a ton. You know, we had a huge party at our apartment and lots of alcohol and pot. And at some point it dawned on me, I think I was walking by Deering Library on the campus of Northwestern. Oh my God, it's me. I'm the Messiah and tears just rolling down my face. And I was all mixed up. I was in a euphoric state with a woman who I was dating. It was the first real, what I would describe as like real relationship I'd been in. And I was all over the place. Like in my mind, you know, she was pregnant with the Messiah. Maybe she was God. It, it was these messianic delusions. And we're told all these stories about deities, right? Every religion, every culture, even superhero culture, right? Harry Potter, there, there's just like all these cultural references to someone special who starts off as a human. And so that was the, the story that I told myself. And it came through in the mania. And then you have this moment where you like start to get medication and you're coming down from it. And I got to tell you, it's so disappointing to realize that you're just a human being. I mean, being God for a few days is tremendously fun. You're like, this is awesome compared to my real life. And so then the recognition that you're not actually is the reason that after a big manic event, it's so frequently followed by a long and brutal depression. And that's why I'm so focused on telling this story now is to, you know, create space, not only to normalize disclosure for the people who are experiencing mental illness or mental health challenges, but for other people around them to recognize that the best thing to do is to affirm it rather than to deny it, question it, or say you don't want to talk about it. Did you end up after this first episode in 2000 when you were a senior, did you end up doing anything differently for your mental health after that period? Alex, I was such a punk. You know, I was, and it's so typical because the onset of bipolar is so frequently when you're young. You know, it, it is really common between, I guess, 16 and 25. That's the onset. And so here I was, in, you know, an invincible senior in college one day, and then this shattering diagnosis that it's such a tough diagnosis because it's, wait, first it's the word disorder. So now I'm disorderly forever. Then it's the word bipolar, which you impute, hey, I just have these two extremes that I'm going to live at. One where I might be hospitalized, harm myself or others, think and do humiliating things. And the other one being one where I've got a one in five chance of ending my own life and a three of five chance of trying to take it. And then we have this terrible thing that we do, which is we tell people that they are bipolar. He is bipolar. Can you imagine being cancer? Like, think about that from a physical illness standpoint. You are cancer. No, we don't do that. We say you have cancer. You are not the same as your illness. You have the illness. And yet with mental illness, you are schizophrenic. You are bipolar. And that's really hard to take on, which leads to you saying, I don't want to take it on. So I saw as I was became an outpatient 
I saw a psychiatrist therapist and basically gave a lecture to him on why I wasn't. Partly because I, you know, I didn't want to be, I couldn't take that on. And then I, we think within a couple months went off my medication because the medication was quite numbing. And this is also so common. You know, I think people who are diagnosed and who get medication, it's a double whammy. First, you don't want to take on that diagnosis psychologically. And second, it's rare that the initial medication is going to make you feel good. It's going to... You know, I would later find take a long time to find the right dosages and the right medications to enable me to still feel like me. So, yeah, Alex, I, I threw it out the window, the diagnosis, the treatment and the medication within uh, within just a few months. I was living perilously relative to what this issue is. It's important to recognize here that even after an episode as frightening as the one that Andy had at 20, And even after being hospitalized and prescribed meds, it can be hard to accept a diagnosis of mental illness. As Andy said, he didn't want to be seen as having a disorder or labeled as this one thing, being bipolar. This is why it's so important to fight the stigma around mental health. When you are in a situation in which you can't accept your own mental health diagnosis, things can get a lot worse really fast. And it did for a 20-year-old Andy Dunn. We're going to take a quick break here, but when we come back, we'll hear about Andy's second major manic episode, his road to recovery and stability, and why he's chosen to share his story now. Stay with us. And we're back. Before the break, Andy told the harrowing story of his first manic episode when he was 20 and the disheartening lack of support from friends or even validation from professionals that followed. Because of this experience, Andy is passionate about amplifying the discussion of mental health, especially among entrepreneurs. Why do you think it's important as an entrepreneur to talk about mental health specifically? Great and such an important question. So first, I think it's important to just share some numbers. So we think that mood disorders, bipolar disorder might be somewhere between 2 and 4% of the overall population. So let's just call it three for simplicity. The initial research on entrepreneurs, and it's not like there's been a ton of this, so this requires more work. UCSF actually has a center where they look at the intersection between entrepreneurship and mental illness, we think bipolar index is seven to one in entrepreneurs. So we're talking about one in five entrepreneurs are dealing with bipolar to say nothing of borderline narcissistic personality, all these other issues that may or may not correlate at a higher rate. Narcissism, I think we can we can definitely say probably, you know, over indexes and By that, I mean unhealthy levels of it. As my doctor would say, we all need some element of narcissism. It's a part of, you know, self-respect, but narcissistic personality disorder, all we have to do is, you know, turn on the news or dial into some documentaries or read some books to see how that can intersect. So it's tricky societally that we come to expect these certain behaviors from entrepreneurs and those happen to correlate. And yet disclosing, actually part of why I am this way is I have this issue, I always felt like would limit me 
or maybe just totally destroy my ability to raise money and hire people, which are the core activities of an entrepreneur. Who would want to follow me if they knew I had this illness? Who would give money to someone who has this illness? And I think part of that is because people don't know what it is. But here's the wild part. Knowing what it is might make you even more scared to back someone. Would you give $128 million to someone who could be hospitalized for psychosis? Would you give it to someone who could be so catatonically depressed that they might not be able to get out of bed or that they would end their own life? And that was part of my realization, Alex, on why I need to write the book, which is to say, if I don't, who will? I write this on behalf of the people who feel like they can't disclose in the hope that we can move towards a society where they can. And the other thing I'll add there is to the person who you know would say to you, I don't have a mental health disorder. I'm not sure how I can participate in this conversation. Going back to what you had mentioned when you were 20, you experienced your first episode, a good friend of yours who had experienced you experiencing that, and a year later, you meet up in Ghost Bar for that conversation. Imagine if that friend had been equipped with some of the tools to have that conversation, potentially how much earlier you would have come around to the idea of being comfortable talking about this. So I think in a lot of ways, even if you're not experiencing it, the odds that someone in your life is experiencing it, very high. And so it's almost your duty to be able to have these conversations because you're going to encounter people in your family or in work that inevitably are experiencing these things. 100%. And I think it's a delicate balance, but I think kind of job one, when you're on the receiving end of that conversation... And for any of you out there listening, maybe you've been a part of these or maybe they're in your future, is to just affirm and listen and absorb it and deploy that rare but so critical human attribute, which is empathy, because it's only after you don't feel ashamed of your issue, typically, that you can seek out help for it. It's hard to feel ashamed and also confirm the shame by seeking out help for it. And then for those of you who might be listening who have a mental health issue that you're experiencing or have been diagnosed, I think that the nudge would be take a 10% risk sometime soon and share it with someone in a situation where you might otherwise not. Just take that 10% risk of like, hey, I'm not, I haven't been feeling so great recently. Yeah. And, you know, those 10% risks compound over time. And maybe it's six weeks or six months, but ideally it's not 16 years (laughs) between like diagnosis and acceptance. What Andy is saying here is so vitally important because of the stigmas around mental illness and the lack of conversation around it. Andy didn't accept his bipolar diagnosis for years. And when someone hides, denies, or doesn't feel safe to disclose their own mental health issues, it makes things worse, not only for the individual, but also for those around them. And in Andy's case, this resulted in a second, far more violent manic episode while he was running Bonobos. I was with my girlfriend. I was actually excited about coming to the realization that I wanted to ask her to marry me. And that's one of the pernicious things about mania is sometimes it emerges from a positive trigger, the birth of a child, in my case, the decision to get engaged. Maybe it's a promotion. Maybe it's the sale of your company something that generates euphoria can frequently, you know, drive mania. And so I had this ascent 
upward. She'd been out of town for a week on business travel. I was out every night. I was drinking. I was really going the wrong way on getting good sleep, which for me is so so closely tied to issues of mood. For me, when my sleep is ticking up, that means I'm headed to a depressive place. And my doctor says, like, depression comes in two stripes, can't get out of bed and can't sleep. I'm in the can't get out of bed side. And then hypomania and mania is so often driven by less sleep and poor quality sleep from the alcohol that really was bedrock for me of self-medicating hypomania. And, you know, I'd be in a good mood and so I'd drink a lot. And in a paradoxical way, that probably helped hold me down. So I had this week, I was sliding upward. Manuela came back. I was so excited to see her. And, you know, next thing we knew, I was howling at the moon and I was thinking I was a superhero at ripping a radiator cover off the wall. And I ran into a a doorway. We had like a low door. Our our bedroom when we lived in on 9th Street, it was like a hobbit cave. <laughs> so there was like a doorway that you had to duck under and I walked straight into it and I had blood coming down uh, my forehead and I was walking in circles and you know they had to call the cops and the, they saved my life probably or saved me from enormous harm because uh, I was going to go out into the street. Uh, I wasn't wearing any clothing and you know, the, the cops and mental health professionals like got me to Bellevue. Um, I remember being zipped into a straitjacket or what felt like one, my arms were restrained and I spent a week in Bellevue and, you know, came back to earth with medication and antipsychotic medication and sleep, sleep medication and all the great treatment that I got there. And, you know, it turns out that in that state of mania, I'd been violent. And so began a really uh, really hard journey coming out of that to figure out, you know, was I going to lose my job? Was I going to lose my girlfriend? Was I going to lose, you know, everything I cared about? And, and so part of that was disclosing to the board. I had a fiduciary responsibility to tell them I knew as bad as this all had been, what would really be bad is if, you know, the New York Post ran a story about the police blotter and they didn't know about it. So I knew that job one was to tell them and tell my executive team. And so really it wasn't until after, that was the first time I actually went back and said, hey, by the way, also I was diagnosed with this when I was 20. So this comes as no surprise, but I was in denial. Um, and and therefore it's really, it's really sad that the coming out only happened after this catastrophic episode. Yeah. And I'd, I'd been running the company for nine years at that point. First of all, thank you for, for sharing that. Like to, to your point of feeling shame around these things, it's so easy to not talk about them. It's the, it's the easier thing, um, but it makes such a big difference in you opening up and being vulnerable about it because I think it gives other people the, the permission to also open up and be vulnerable. When you told the board about it, how did they react? They were incredible. You know, I I decided first that the way to tell the board would be to get the whole story out quickly. And so I said something like, you know, I've, I've just been discharged from the psychiatric ward at Bellevue. Uh, I was hospitalized for mania. It's happened before. I was 20. I had a manic episode. I was diagnosed with bipolar 1 been in denial for a long time. And I got choked up, as I said, you know, the really hard part about this is 
I was arrested coming out for you know felony and misdemeanor assault. It's still not resolved. It's from a you know state of manic violence you know that I that I had, um, and I think at that point you know I disclosed that it involved my girlfriend and her mom. And you know, the first thing that anyone said was said by uh, Joel Peterson, who actually incidentally was our very first investor, when a career investor and entrepreneur. He'd been on over 30 public boards. He was also no stranger to life, you know, seven kids, 20 grandkids. So I think if you've got that many descendants, you know, you've gone through a lot and you also know how to love people. And he said, look, Andy, this is, this is all too common. I've known a lot of people that have faced this issue, which is also not surprising if you're in your seventies. And so that affirmation out the gates. Um, and then I think he said something like, you know, we'll get through it. He sort of spoke for everyone right away. And then someone else said, you know, how, how's Manuela? Which meant so much to me because they just instantly personalized it and instantly drew attention away from me yeah, into something so important because like, how was Manuela? And the truth of that answer is she was not well, but she was by my side and didn't give up on me. And I really, I really rebuilt myself and my psyche and my health on the back of her iron will and love and acceptance, which I, which I to this day feel was just remarkable on her part, because I think a lot of people would have, would have, uh, you know, potentially headed to the Hills and to be accepted by the board and by our executive team. And this comes back to privilege, you know, to have so many loving and understanding people around me. And then, frankly, Alex, the financial resources to be able to have a great psychiatrist when our reimbursement rates are so low, to be able to hire an attorney, which I needed due to the legal stuff, to hire a crisis PR firm in, in case the story broke. I mean, the amount of love and good luck and money and all that that went into my putting myself back together, you know, like Humpty Dumpty, I was in a thousand pieces. I was enormously privileged, which also comes back to why it's important to tell the story because so many of you out there are probably facing these issues and don't don't have all the, those ingredients. And I just want to recognize that that makes the journey even harder and that makes the normalization that we need to do even more important. I have one last question for you, which is you spoke earlier about how the unfortunate thing with bipolar disorder is how often very positive experiences can lead to manic episodes. So the experience of selling bonobos for $310 million, the experience of having your first child hypothetically can be provoking for your disorder. Tell me about what your mental stack looks like today. The things that you do to have a productive relationship with the ghost that lives within and if any of those really positive experiences in life ended up being provoking for you in terms of your mental wellness? Yeah, awesome question. So the stack, I like that you called it the, the stack because it it's like an Olympic regimen, I feel like, <laughs> in terms of my focus and the number of things. So look, so bedrock is medication, right? So I am someone who is going to be forever medicated. It's not a temporal, hey, I'm going to take some antidepressants and I'm going to get better. I hope to get off the meds. There's some kind of like victory of like, I'm not on medication or I'm not on medication anymore. Yeah. I don't give a shit about that. Like I'm on medication forever. And so I actually have one medication I take every day, 
which is a mood stabilizer. And then I have four other prescriptions in the hopper, depending on where I'm at. So medication is bedrock. Then side by side with that is seeing a, a psychopharmacologist twice a week. Then the next up is sleep, which is so core. And so, you know, I, I wear this Fitbit and every morning I take a screenshot of how much sleep I've had, how much REM, and uh, I text it to a WhatsApp group and it goes to my doctor and my wife, my mom and my sister. And that's that way everyone has a lot of transparency into what is a core trigger, if we want to call it that. And then transparency about mood beyond just sleep, right? So I, I tell my wife how I'm feeling. Um, like I, I don't hide, I don't stonewall. Like let's say I'm even upset with her, which can happen even with a wonderful spouse. I tell her, it, it used to be hard for me to say, Hey, I'm, I'm angry with you. Right. And now I've realized you got to get those emotions out. So transparency about mood. And then there are other things that help, right? Like exercise helps a ton, particularly when it comes to being an antidepressant. And eating well, I think, is a good thing. I don't know exactly the, the the math behind it, so to speak. I don't always have those things in place. You know what I mean? Like sometimes I eat poorly and sometimes I don't exercise. But the bedrock are doctor, medication, sleep, and transparency. And so to the the second part of that question, which I want to finish with is experiences, really happy experiences, like the experience of having your child Isaiah what was that experience like for you when you were just saying before that experiences like that can be incredibly provoking for the disorder? I mean, part of what made this story so important is after going through hell in 2016, putting my life back together, getting healthy, going through all these terrible times, 2017 was actually a magical year. You know, I converted to Judaism, which was very centering for me to have like a worldview, to belong to something, to be like, well, there is a, for me anyway, like there is God out there and it's not me. <laughs> um, and you know, yes, did I turn to religion to deal with this? I did. Like, I'm not saying that's right for everyone, but that's part of what happened and it was helpful. Um, 10 year anniversary of Bonobos. We sold the company for $310 million. The Cubs won the world series. That was big. Um, and, and I got married. So I had like these six or five or six things happened to me that were, were beautiful things. And so the day of my wedding, I just remember thinking, and I had talked to my doctor aloud about it. You know, I never thought anyone would want to marry me. So the day of the wedding, I was so happy inside. And we had a huge party. And I think we had a few hundred, 400 people who were coming. And we had the DJ, you know, the band until two and the DJ until five. Like we were really doing it up. The wedding was starting late. It was starting at 8 p.m. because got to get married after the sun goes down, you know, in Jewish tradition. So I did a lot of work that day to cultivate Zen. And I remember I just felt so freaking Zen that day. And the same thing the day my son was born. Like, and that was even more profound because this new human was coming into the world who was going to need a lot from his parents and from me. And not just the day he was born, but forever. And I can remember, you know, Manuela had the C-section and they handed the baby to me. And, you know, he had stopped crying quickly and he was just looking around the room and I was looking at him. And I remember thinking to myself, and I, it could bring a tear right now, like, I'm never going to let you down. 
you know, like I'm not going to let you down or in ever, whatever ways I do, it's going to be, cause I know I will, it's not going to be because I've lost my mind. I just want to thank you for being open and for telling your story, uh, because I know it's going to have an impact on so many people. Alex, it's been wonderful, been beautiful to be here with you and, and to anyone listening. Um, I just want you to know if you're struggling that there is a path to healing and integration and and it it does begin with with openness and transparency and disclosure andy's story is such an important example of why we must normalize the conversation around mental illness because he felt so much shame when he was first diagnosed with bipolar andy didn't deal with it for years and it almost cost him everything As Andy mentioned during our conversation, according to the National Alliance on Mental Health, 2.8% of people in the US have a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. That's around one in 35 people. Additionally, 8.4% of all adults in the US have experienced a major depressive episode as of 2020. The point being, even if you don't have a mental health struggle yourself, you know someone who does or you work with people who do. I hope that Andy's story sends a message that resonates throughout every industry, that everyone only stands to benefit when we're able to be open about our mental health. And even if the idea of disclosing your struggle is daunting to you right now, as Andy mentioned during our interview, consider taking that 10% risk. Start with just one person to confide in and take it from there. Now, imposters listeners, we need your help. We would love to hear from you on how the conversations on imposters have impacted your life. How does this show help you in your career or your personal life? Are there any particular guests or episodes that have stood out to you? And tell me the stuff that you haven't liked where you want the show to get better. Our goal is simple. We want to make this as valuable as humanly possible and make the show worthy of your time. So shoot me an email at alex at morningbrew.com and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. Imposters is a production of Morning Brew. Our senior producer is Vishnu Vallabhaneni and Michaela Heck is our producer. Brian Henry is our executive producer and A.B. Silver is our booking producer. Our sound engineers are Dan Bauza and Rosemary Minkler. Greg Jacobs is our video producer and Sarah Singer is our VP of Multimedia. Our theme song is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Original music in this episode is by Rosemary Minkler. 